All right, tonight, part 39, slowly but surely, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that this morning is not one of those situations where everyone just focuses on the illustration and not the principle behind said illustration. Uh, I I probably won't know till this week. Um, Most of the listeners know that I'm kind of busy this weekend, so I haven't received too many emails. But hopefully on Monday or Tuesday when I start getting my normal emails, I'll find out if people remember the actual principle or just the illustration. But that's always the danger when you come up with an illustration, right? Everyone remembers stuck in the mud or now they're going to remember, you know, school and imputed grades and so, but perfect score. I, I hope everyone remembers that that was pointing to a very important truth, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, yes. It's amazing what people hear. They walk away and like, that's not what I meant, but you hope everyone remembers correctly. But we will see. But the point was, the re- one of the reasons you have to continue, to, or at least I feel, you have to continue to try to come up with so many illustrations is because you, you want people to really understand the significance of what we're saying. It's not just some theoretical concept. That has practical implications to our lives, right? About how we understand salvation, how we understand our, our responsibility or our connection to the law, how, I mean, it, it's so, it, it changes our entire understanding of Christianity. And I think it's, and I, and I really hope you caught on to the significance of what I tried to say, that if, if someone's grade is imputed to me, how do, you, how do you test that? If you give me the test, I'm just going to fail the test, right? That's the whole reason I had to have imputed in the first place, right? So if you t- so you'd have to test the other person. Well, if you take that theologically, how can you test my salvation? Because if you test my salvation, who would you have to test? You'd have to test Christ, which, because as soon as you tested me, what would you find out? Obviously, why I needed an imputed grade, right? I think that that fits perfectly to the whole thing we've tried to talk about for basically 38 messages now in this series on the, under, on the proper understanding of law and gospel. Because people want to judge and sense your salvation by the gospel by giving you the test of law. Well, if I could pass the test with law, I wouldn't need the gospel. <laughs> like, I don't understand. Like, I, if, in fact, once you say it that way, to me, I was like, wow, that, that illustration is actually very, works really, really, really well, I think. I think so. Well, I, I don't know. We'll have to see what the reactions are. But we say all of that. Do you remember the passages of Scripture we looked at? Well, the first one was Galatians 3, 11 through 12, and then Romans 4, 16. Make sure you remember that. And then we went to Romans 1, 17, because it's a cross-reference of Galatians 3, 11 through 12. All right? Everybody remember all of that? Okay. Now, and just remember this, no gospel element then, no gospel element must be mingled with the law. Anyone expounding the law shamefully perverts it by injecting into it grace. You don't inject grace into the law. You leave the law as it is, which is condemning, which makes you uncomfortable. Which makes you, and, and we have this weird tendency to say, no, 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 Jesus didn't mean this. Jesus did And we want to reduce it because we think we have to somehow be able to keep it. We can't keep it. That's why we have to have a Savior. Exactly, all right? The gray, uh, we do not want to inject into it grace, 
loving kindness, patience, or anything along that. You just want the law to stand as it is, as condemning as it is. A preacher must proclaim the law in such a manner that there remains in it nothing pleasant to the lost and condemned sinner. Now, I'm going to make this very clear. There should be nothing pleasant in it, at least from one perspective, even for us as saved people. On one sense, there's nothing pleasant about the law because it shows us our inability and our, our, our failure over and over and over and over. Every sweet ingredient injected into the law is poison. Anything sweet you inject into the law, it's poison because it lessens the impact of the law. You can't lessen the impact of the law. People have to feel the weight of the law. Everybody, everybody got that down, right? It basically, it renders the heavenly medicine ineffectual. Why does it make the heavenly medicine ineffectual? I don't feel like I need it. If you feel like you can do it, right? And that, and really, if you think about evangelical Christianity, that's exactly what it's come down to. You can do it now. You can do it. You can prove that you're saved. You can do it. Well, the gospel isn't to make me able to do it. The gospel is to save me because I can't do it. That's the whole point. So in a roundabout way, we've completely rendered the gospel as ineffectual, as we don't even need it. Man, that, that, you don't understand how theologically devastating that is for the American church. We've rendered the gospel ineffectual because we've injected sweetness and watered down the law. Or, if you think about it, really if you think about it, in, in American Christianity, we do water down the law, but this is another thing we do. We inject some supernatural power into ourselves so that we truly believe that we can actually keep the law. And in a way, what do you not need? We, we see the gospel is simply giving us power. But the gospel is not there to give me power. The gospel is there to give me righteousness imputed to me. It's, it's so weird that like, we, 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 everyone runs around condemning the Catholic Church. And I, I know I've said this now a million times in these 39 messages, but it's just, we're, we're, we haven't changed anything. We're just as Catholic as we were before the Protestant Reformation. We've just changed the wording, pretending that we're, I don't even know, and, like, and you see this in Reformed churches, and you're like, you're, you're, no, you're just as Catholic as Catholic. How dare you say that? Well, because it is. It's, it's just another form of Catholicism. We've molded it, changed the language, but it comes down to the gospel gives me, infuses me with power. And how do I know I, I'm saved? By the use of said power to now pass a test that someone arbitrarily places upon me. Or I just arbitrarily place upon myself. And then I judge the score of that test based off what? Not God's standard, because God's standard, if I sin in one point of the law, I'm guilty in all of it, so how would I ever pass that test? I mean, think about it. If, if the test to prove salvation is somehow obedience, 
Well, the minute Bobby sins in one area, he's guilty of the entire law. So how is the only way he could ever pass the test? He would have to score 100 every single time. Isn't it weird that people say, no, 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 no. If you're truly saved, you're going to see change. Well, how do I judge that change? Because if I change, let's say I change in 300 ways. If I judge that change spiritually, as long as I sin in one area, how guilty am I? Of the entire law, so therefore I could never prove that I'm saved. So then we come with some arbitrary way in which we judge it. It just makes, I, I don't even understand the controversy. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, they, yeah, we, 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 I don't know what we do. It just becomes crazy. Yeah, we don't even need him to die. We just need him to give us power. Oh, oh right, true, true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's crazy. All right, so tonight we go to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. We've got a bunch of scriptures to look at tonight. We'll see how far we can get. All right, so that's just a little, not even really an introduction. That's just kind of uh, adding more discussion to what we've talked about all morning. All right, now we'll see if we can end this night with something hopefully very beneficial, or at least try to finish this thesis. What thesis are we on? Six, and remember how our, what's our simple summary of this thesis? The word, of God, the, the word of God is not rightly divided when law is not preached in its sternness and gospel not in its full sweetness. And at that point, we, we start mingling and we, we don't want to do that. All right? Everybody understand that? Law in its full sur, uh, sternness and gospel in its full sweetness. Everybody remember those ter- terms. All right. Here we go. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Now, as soon as I say Matthew 5, 17 through 19, where are we? Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. Remember, this has become a, isn't it interesting? This has kind of become central to a lot of our teaching in this series so far. All right. Yeah, he's using that. Yeah, he's using that. Because because this is such a, a, a central sermon here, right? How you understand law and gospel will determine how you really interpret this entire sermon. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Everybody ready? Jesus is speaking, and what does he say? Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy. Now, it's a, this is fascinating to me. If you hear many Christians quote that, what, how do they understand Jesus came to fulfill the law? How do they understand? What do they think they, uh, how do they interpret that? How do most Christians interpret when it says he came to fulfill the law? Right, but I'm saying how most Christians interpret this. If you just, just listen to any sermon. Therefore, we don't have to. No, 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 no. They, they, I wish they would interpret it that way. They don't interpret it that way. What? That he simply fulfilled like the prophecy or what the law foretold. They only see this as Jesus just fulfilling prophecy. This is not about Jesus fulfilling prophecy. When it says he fulfilled the law, what does he fulfill? The requirements of the law. The requirements of the law. And what is the requirement of the law? Perfect obedience. How did Jesus fulfill it? Perfect obedience. Now, if the law has been perfectly fulfilled on my behalf, now what's the logical conclusion here? 
can Diane say, hey, I've got to judge your salvation based on your obedience because my obedience is perfect because all the law has been fulfilled for me. So how can you judge me based on my incomplete obedience to the law because it's been perfectly in for me? Do you see? Do you see the like? That's just a lot. That's a logical problem. You can't say no, 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 no. You're an antinomian because you don't believe you have to fulfill the law. Well, wait a minute. I don't have to fulfill the law because it's been fulfilled for me. <laughs> so I'm not against the law. I just know you can't judge me on the basis of it because in Christ. Is fulfilled perfectly. All right, that, that, uh, that's just so important. All right, verse eighteen: For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Okay. Now we we we've probably have read this a hundred different ways, even in our own Christian lives. But in the context, what is Jesus talking about? The entire law is not going to go away until it's all fulfilled. Who fulfills it? Christ. See, we typically read this to mean all the prophecies. The Bible's not going to go into all the... This is not referring to prophecies. This is referring to law. Do you see that? That's very important. All right? I don't know if you realize this. We're offering a completely different interpretation of this than most preach. All right? I don't know if you're catching on to this. This is not about the fulfillment of prophecy. It's about the fulfillment of the law and who fulfills it. Christ. Next verse. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach man, so shall he be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, I, I, and again, look at the next verse. For this is where this is the whole summary of it. For I say unto you, everybody, read it. In other words, your righteousness has to be what kind of a righteousness? A perfect righteousness. How does my righteousness exceed theirs? Yeah, only by an imputed righteousness. Or I have to run around and go, well, wait, they did this and 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 did this. So how do I, in a sense, how do I become what they say, um, how shall I be called great in the kingdom of heaven? How shall I be called great in the kingdom of heaven? I got to keep the law to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And so therefore, how do I become great in the kingdom of heaven? In Christ, because Christ has done what? Fulfilled it. How does my righteousness exceed the Pharisees? In Christ. Does that make sense? I, I, I hope it does. All right, now let's see what they have to say here about this passage. That's a very important passage right there, all right? This is the paragraph they write about it. When preaching the law... Now now he's going to talk about preaching the law. You must bear in mind that the law makes no concessions. I cannot stress this again. What does the law not make? Any concessions. That means when we read the Sermon on the Mount, there's no concessions. You can't say, well, when Jesus has turned the other cheek, he doesn't really mean this. Or when Jesus says, resist not evil, well, he doesn't mean it in this way. When he says, love your enemy, well, he doesn't really mean that. We start trying to find all of the concessions and the exceptions. There are no exceptions. That's what, I, now, 
on one hand, I am glad that my entire Christian life, I have always tried to view the Sermon on the Mount as not having any concessions. That's led me to a lot of my beliefs about lots of things that gets me in trouble, right? But I'm always like, no, Jesus said it in the Sermon. And people are like, oh, you're taking that the wrong way. You're taking, and I'm like, no, that's what he said. They want to make concessions. Now, the problem is, the way I understood it is there is no concession in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what I must do. And if I'm not doing it enough, I prove I was never saved. So I didn't want to make any concessions, right? But I had the lordship mindset that says somehow that I could possibly do it. And I tried and I tried and I tried and I tried and I tried. And, I tried. and guess what? I could never pull off. Be perfect as my heavenly father is imperfect. So I was like, I didn't, I didn't have it. So on one hand, I didn't make any concessions with it which would get me in trouble politically because I'm like, no, Jesus says that. People are like, no, it doesn't mean that. I wasn't making the concessions, but then I thought we could somehow pull it off. So I had it mixed up. Other people make concessions. I didn't make the concessions, but I thought somehow, some way, it's got to be possible for us to pull it off, which is not possible. I thought it was. I thought it was. But I've been a Christian long enough to know no one does it. No one. It's not possible. Yeah, yeah, put it this way, if it's possible, you're right. There's, I don't know where they are. I haven't found them yet. That means there's basically no one saved, okay? And we'll put it this way. I guarantee you there's no one out there who is as perfect as God is perfect. And that the text, and that's what it says. So, but there's no concession. I just want to make sure. There is no concession. That's why. Did Jesus make a concession to the rich young ruler? That's the most fascinating thing about that. Hey, I've kept the commandments. Oh, you have? Go sell everything and give it to the poor. Didn't he say, love your neighbor as yourself? Then seek first the kingdom of God, right? Where your heart is, that's where your, or where your treasure is, there is your heart, right? However it's worded, right? You get the idea? So he, he just takes it and says, okay, go do it. And the guy's like, well, I'm walking away. And did Jesus make one concession? He didn't make one concession. He didn't even offer what? He didn't offer a clarification. He didn't even offer a clarification. And he just he walks away. That's a fascinating passage. Just showing we, we cannot make a concession with the law. I know we want to. But all right, here we go. Now this is, this is very important. That is utterly... Besides the character of the law, it only makes demands. In other words, the character of the law is never to make a concession. It only does what? It makes demands. All the law does is demand, 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 demand. No concession at all. That, 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 man, we have to understand that about the law. We have to understand this about the law. The law says, you must do this. If you fail to do it, you have no recourse to the patience, loving kindness, and long-suffering of God. You will have to go to perdition for your wrongdoing. That's what the law says. Do this, and if you don't, you don't get the loving kindness of God. You don't get anything. You go to hell. End of story. That's what the law says. It's no give, no compromise. In any way, shape, or form. To make this point quite plain to us, the Lord says, 
Whosoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments, this is the translation they're using, Whenever, whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches man to do so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Then does that, that does not mean he shall have the lowest place assigned to him in heaven, but he does not belong in the kingdom of heaven at all. Well, in either way, the point is you're not to do what? You're not to lessen it. You're to teach it the way it is given. All right. We could get into a whole discussion the way they're interpreting it, but you get, we get the basic idea. Right? So there's Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Now go to Galatians 3, 10. There's Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Now go to Galatians 3, 10. Galatians 3, 10. Everybody there? All right. Galatians 3, 10. For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not, and all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So, what does the law require? This is where we get the whole phrase from. Perfect, exact, entire, perpetual. Any deviation from that, you're what? Cursed. So, now just logically, take that, take that to its logical conclusion. I, I, I don't know how many different... This is what blows my mind. I don't understand why there would be any disagreement on it when you really think about this. But, but okay, I, I, just, I don't even understand the disagreement anymore, but that's okay. I, I, it's just when you really start thinking, thinking about this, it all seems to fall into place. If, if the law demands perfect, exact, entire and perpetual obedience, and if I use the law to judge someone's salvation, then what's the requirement for them to pass the test that they're saved? Exact, entire, perfect, perpetual obedience, and if they do not present that, then what are they according to this verse? Cursed. Therefore, would anyone pass the test? No, so what do we do with our test? We modify it, right? We've talked about this a hundred times. Here's the test, and then what do we say after we say this is the test? But we can't do it perfectly. <laughs> well, but the, the Bible says it's, the law doesn't say, no, 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 you're good. No. So how does that work? Like, like I'm going to judge your salvation based off your imperfect obedience to the perfect law of God. How then do it, how can I ever judge it? Like, I don't even know what that means. Hey, well, I mean, as long as you're changed somehow, go, go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Go to Narcotics Anonymous. There's many people in there who've been changed, right? Dramatic change in their life. Dramatic change. Many of them are atheists. Agnostic. Right? And when I say atheist, in other words, I don't believe in that personal. They just believe in something out there, maybe. Because that's one of the steps, you know, in, in there. You believe in some higher power, right? Higher power can be anything. So I'm atheist in a really technical way, is what I'm trying to say. But in other words, they're not Christian. But their lives are truly and utterly transformed, right? They're, they used to be shooting up heroin multiple times a day. You know, strung out, almost dead. Now they're completely clean. Now, does that mean salvation? 
No, but that's what we look for, some dramatic change. Well, there's some change in your life, so that proves you're saved. No, it doesn't prove you're saved. Did the Pharisees and Sadducees have a very different way of living than the tax collector and the publican and the harlot? And who was condemned? (laughs) Those people, right? And you're like, how is that possible? Remember that? Remember when we started struggling with a lot of this, and I think Sarah was the same way as I was, that the verse that disturbed me, and I think she said it disturbed her, was the whole Matthew passage where it says, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things? And he says, depart from me, for I'm never... And you're like, well, wait a minute. Well, then how can I ever judge my salvation if that didn't even pass the test? Because they did more than I guarantee any of you have ever done. (laughs) So, I... yeah, yeah, right. did miracles, yeah, all those things. I mean, just think about everything that they do in that passage. They call him Lord. They're acknowledging authority, right? They preach in his name, right? They do miracles, and they cast out demons. That seems like a pretty good start for, I don't know, salvation, yes? And he's like, depart from me. Depart from me? What do you mean, depart from me? What did I do wrong? Because your salvation is not based off what? You do. I mean, that, that passage really, really bothered me. But this just demonstrates what's required. Galatians 3.10, what's required? You've got to keep the law perfectly. What does it say? Look at it again. Galatians 3.10. If you don't continue in everything that's written in the law, everything. Do you know how many laws there are in here? You're cursed. Then, then what's my hope? Not keeping it. Right? Not, I, not, in, not in my keeping it. Someone else has got to do it. This is what it says, Galatians 3.10. If you would direct men to, to do good works and for their comfort add this remark, you should indeed be perfect. However, God does not demand the impossible from us. Uh, God does not demand what is impossible from us. Do what you can in your weakness. Only be sincere in your intention. If you would speak thus, you would be preaching a damnable doctrine. Now, let me, let me read this again, because this is important. All right? If you would direct men to do good works for their comfort, add a remark like this. You should indeed be perfect. However, God does not demand the impossible from us. Do what you can in your weakness, only be sincere in your intention. If you would speak this way, you would be preaching a damnable doctrine. In other words, this is very similar to what we were just talking about. Hey, hey, obey! Prove you're saved! Now, you're not going to do it perfect. So as long as you do it halfway, as long as you're sincere, as long as you care, as long as you desire best you can, then you're okay. That's a damnable doctrine. Why is it a damnable doctrine? Well, because you're, you're pointing to the wrong thing. You're pointing to your your works and your supposed desire to be different. No, I don't point you to that. I point you to the fact that what does the law demand? Perfection. Are you perfect? No. So guess what you deserve? Hell. I can't look to that to prove his salvation because it would only condemn him. So what do I have to look to? Christ. I can't say, well, you're, Bobby, you're, you're different than that person. Well, wait a minute. If you point to that person that I'm different, 
Am I different to the Mormon who gives up two years of their life for a Mormon missionary trip? Am I different to the 16, 17-year-old girl who gives up her life to be a nun? Okay, right. I mean, like, I mean, so it's always easy to say that I'm different and that I'm changed when I look to a different standard. But why, But wait, which standard am I to look to? God's standard, so no matter how much change I supposedly see in my life, it's only, always inadequate. So I, I just want, that's a powerful line. Let me read that again, right? If you would direct men to do good works, and for their comfort, you were to add this. So, you, so in other words, you're directing men to good works. Right? In other words, you're directing men to the law. But you want to comfort them. So you say, you should indeed be perfect. However, God does not demand the impossible from us. See how they're watering it down? See? Hey, you can't do everything in the Sermon on the Mount. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. That's crazy. Do what you can in your weakness. Only be sincere in your intention. If you would speak thus, you would be preaching a damnable doctrine, for that is shameful corruption of the law. God never spoke like that from Sinai. Did God ever speak like that? He didn't say, well, no, no, I didn't really mean it. I, I didn't really mean that. That's, that's, that's pretty extreme. That's pretty extreme. Someone was arguing with me about this, and I, so I said, okay, 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 you're right, you're right. Um, let's say that your actions, your actions prove your salvation. You're right. So I gave them the three. Which three did I give them? Love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself, and be ye holy as God is holy. And you know what they responded to? Well, that's impossible. I'm, like, so I'm confused here. So we have to look to our works to prove that we're saved. We just don't look to those three. Those three don't count. And I'm like, what? And he's like, well, you know, it just means that like, you love God and, and you're trying and, and you try to read your Bible. And I'm like, when did trying ever be saved? Trying is now the new standard to prove that I'm saved. I'm trying. Well, what? The, the, the law doesn't accept trying. Okay? <laughs> I don't even understand that. Well, see, that proves you're saying. No, it doesn't prove anything. That doesn't prove anything. It just proves I'm trying to meet a moral standard. I, I just, oh, it's crazy. All right. God never spoke that way. Can we all agree? God never said, hey, it's your best effort. It's your tr-. No, he's like, do this. And if you don't, yeah, Satan would be, yeah, that would be definitely more than just more Satan, because Satan is getting you away from the gospel. Right? Uh, next passage, that was Galatians, or that was Romans 7, no, that was Galatians 3.10. Now go to Romans 7.14. Now this one is interesting. Romans chapter 7. We're going to have to think this. I don't know if I understand what they're saying here. Okay, so if we get confused, it's not my fault. Romans chapter 7. Everybody good? Okay. I'm going to assume that was a hearty yes. Okay. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. I'm going to read it in a different translation just to see if we get confused here. All right, everybody ready? Romans seven fourteen. For we know that the law is what? Is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. 
For I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Now, I went a little further there, but the main thing in verse 14 is what? The law is spiritual. I am fleshly. And I'm a sold as a, I'm a slave to what? Under sin. Right? So let's break that down. The law is what? Spiritual. I am carnal or fleshly. And I'm sold to sin. See those three things? Everybody got that? Okay. Now let's see what they say here. When a minister preaches the law, he must by all means bear in mind that the law is spiritual. It works on the spirit, not on some member of the body. This is an interesting concept. It is directed to the spirit in man, to his will, heart, and affections. This is the way it operates in every instance. Now that's interesting. Now, if the law is spiritual and I'm fleshly, we, we, what, what are some at least basic conclusions we can come to? The law is spiritual and I'm fleshly. What's the first thing that we know we're in trouble? That means there's no way we can keep it in the flesh. Right? Would everyone agree? All right, number two, this is very important. If the law is spiritual and I'm fleshly, what would be a second thing that this would tell us? That kind of hint at it in that paragraph. That the law goes beyond the mere actions of the flesh and looks for what's going on internally and there immediately we know we are what? We're condemned, right? In other words, even if I have, even if I was to judge Bobby's actions by external action and go, well, I think you're saved, that would not prove anything because the law is spiritual. It's looking for Bobby's motivations, his desire, his intent. And guess what? That, oh, I guarantee you, I don't care how godly you think you are, and you can walk around patting yourself on the back all day thinking you're safe. That law condemns you upside down. Because, man, you get insane. No, no, not one Christian would want to walk up in front of a church and have some device put on them that showed their desire, showed their heart, showed their... Mo- we would be hor- horrified. We all know it. Oh, the arrogance, the pride, the gossip, the slander, the hatred, the lack of love, the bitterness. Oh my, it would be, it would be the most embarrassing, horrible thing. And I'm speaking for everyone in this church, including me. Every single, nobody would want any of that. But yet we walk around going, no, 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 no. Your life has to be changed. That proves salvation. You know what? Just be quiet. Because what you want to say to someone like that, oh, you talk a big game? Let's see what's going on inside of you. As soon as the video got played, they would drop their rock and walk away because they'd be horribly embarrassed. You know it, I know it. The law is spiritual. That's the, whole, that's the point everyone always misses, Right? Because what do we want to judge someone's salvation by? By an external action, right? How can you judge it by an external action? 
The external action proves what? Nothing. You ever been around a committed Catholic? Many times their external actions are better than a lot of Protestants. I've been around a conservative Muslim. That's commitment. A, a, a committed Mormon? A committed Jehovah's Witness? I can go all day. Many times their actions and their lives seem to put Christians to shame. Why? Because Christianity has never been about that. It's been about saving us because we cannot do what? Keep God's law. But we, tr- we, we oh, it's so messed up how we've so destroyed everything. Right? Here we go. A proper preaching of the law must measure up to these requirements. In other words, if you're going to preach the law correctly, it must meet all of these requirements. And what is the requirements? No concession, no watering it down. You preach it stern. You preach the fact that the law is spiritual. You preach it the way it is. And what would everyone's conclusion every time they hear it would be? I am a sinner. Woe is me. I'm undone. I have no hope. Everyone, that should be, that should be what we say all the time. But some weird Christians sit out there and go, no, 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 no. It proves that I'm saved. Isn't it weird that you can have a Christian sit in the same church, the law is preached, and they're like, that proves I'm saved, when the rest of us are like, that proves we're going to hell. Now you, something, like this is the mystery of mysteries. How can one be confronted with the law and say, that proves we're saved. Well, the rest of us says, that condemns us. How can we all hear the exact same law and come to such radically different conclusions? Something's wrong there. I don't understand it. Now, I can understand if a person's young and they've only been saved for a short period of time. Right? Because when you're young and you saved a short period of time, I mean, you obviously think you can pull off every. You haven't been, a, you haven't been saved very, very long. But the longer you're saved, the more you become more and more confronted with what? The things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. And if you'll just be halfway honest with yourself, you'd be like, this doesn't work. This system does not work. This system does not work. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And Romans 7, 25. Exactly. Which everyone seems to forget when they preach Romans 7. I don't know why they, that just, that verse just gets obliterated, right? It's like, no, he literally says that with his flesh, he's going to continue to serve what? The law of sin, that means something, right? I don't know how that's completely uh, forgotten, but okay. All right, let's let's hear, here we go. A proper preaching of the law must measure up to these requirements. There is to be no ranting about horrible vices that may be rampant in the congregation. Continual ranting will prove useless. Now, this is what I wish I uh, I would have understood this when I was a young pastor. Because when you're a young pastor, this is what you have a tendency to do. What is wrong here, right? Because you know, you see the sin and the vices in the people, right? It can be spiritually lazy, no spiritual appetite, not reading the Bible, not studying the Bible. You can go on and on and on. And so what you have a tendency to do is just rant and rant and rant. Because what are you looking for? Some kind of outward change. Some kind of outward change. Some kind of outward obedience. And they're saying that this is... This is, this is useless. There's no point in doing that. There's no point in doing that. You can rant all day long. 
So what are they going to say? Here we go. People may quit the practices that have been reproved, but in two weeks, they will relapse into their old ways. Wow, that's... It's funny reading that. Okay, He gave them two weeks. But it's funny because you've heard sometimes me express that frustration or aggravation because I'm like, what's the point? No matter what I try, it's useless, right? I've expressed that frustration because, because you're right. You can reprove and you can get maybe a little bit of change. Now, the longer you've been at the church, the less effective your reproving is. Right? I mean, that's just a fact, right? Familiarity breeds contempt, right? Look, if you have some other kid at your house and you give them a rebuke, you may get immediate change. Your kids are like, whatever, whatever. Like, they may walk away and do it, right? But it's like, whatever, right? Because they, they don't even care. They don't even hear your rebuke anymore. It's like, blah, 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 blah. That's how it is. It sounds when I say something. Y'all, y'all, y'all just are, womp, 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 womp. And then when I finally say something different, you're like, okay, I'm going to listen to that. It's just truth, Right? Now, as a young Christian, I didn't understand this. Like, I will scream louder. I will hit the pulpit longer, right? I will preach longer, right? I will do something. I'm going to get the point across. Okay, and at some point you realize it's not working. So now this can lead to complete, now this is a serious thing. Because it can lead, I mean, you talk about how many pastors just resign from the ministry. This is what will cause it to happen. You're like, what am I doing? Anyone, you, anyone who's been a parent, anyone who's homeschooled, anyone who's been a teacher in a school, what do you feel like sometimes? What's the point? No one cares. No one's listening. It doesn't matter. Okay, right? But yeah, as a pastor, you don't. You just one week after the next week. I mean, just think, how many, I mean, 21 years? I've had maybe one Sunday, I mean, one Sunday here or there, right? I mean, I've been here. I mean, I've gone from the hospital having a seizure to this pulpit, have I not? Multiple times, right? Work two days in a row, military exercise, and come here and preach with three bottles of five-hour energy, right? But week after week after week. I mean, look at just how many episodes I've done of the Theology Central. We're like at 3,000 episodes. It's almost 900 a year. That's a lot of talking. Okay, well, I, I don't know if I'm good at it. I, I'm, just, I'm persistent, okay? I will say that, right? Or I'm just dumb, or as, I, I hope no one would ever call me stubborn, but maybe I'm stubborn, but I just keep doing it, right? But at some point, even I can go, what's the point? What's the point? It doesn't mean anything. It's useless. Right? I know, but I'm saying, come on, the reality is, though, that, 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 what I want you to hear is the reality. That, that's the reality, is I can reprove and rebuke and I may get changed for two weeks, but everyone reverts back to their old ways. That's nothing. To me, this is a freeing uh, information. uh, When I was younger, this was discouraging, right? Now I'm a little bit more able to understand, no, this is more freeing. It's not as discouraging as it once was. Because at once it was like, well, then what do I got to do to get the change? So then what, what's the only conclusion? Well, the Lordship gives me the, my, my one out. Oh, they're probably not saved. Well, that's not a good solution because then you realize, well, I'm not even saved. 
Okay, so that's not a good solution. So let's see where he's going to go here. But the point is, what he's trying to say is you can't just rant and rant and rant and rant because it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything. Why doesn't it do anything? Well, let's see what, let's see what they say here. Let's see if they offer a solution. This is a very important part of this entire thing, okay? All right. There is to be no ranting about vices that may be rampant in the congregation. Continual ranting will prove useless. People may quit the practice. They have been reproved, but in two weeks, they will relapse into their old ways. You must indeed testify with great earnestness against transgression of God's commandments. But you must also tell the people, even if you were to quit, your habitual cursing, swearing, and the like, that would not make you Christians. You might go to perdition for all of that. God is concerned about the attitude of your heart. In other words, the focus is I can't worry on just these external actions. I have to focus on the attitude of the heart. And guess what? I have very little control over the attitude of the heart. And in fact, what the, I think the most thing is what I cannot back down, I can't water down the law. But what I must do is with the condemnation that comes with the law is you must be given the gospel because what changes the condition of the heart? And listen to me. It changes the condition of the heart in this way because the heart still remains sinful. Remember, we already talked about this. What happens is, though, there should hopefully, the more you realize how sinful you are and how sweet the gospel is, it does and hopefully begins to create inside of you a greater appreciation and a greater love and a greater gratitude for the fact that the gospel becomes more and more sweeter to the fact of your sin. It's not so much trying to just, because what we have a tendency to do is we just want the change of the external life. But it's not about giving you the change of the external life. It's about letting you see your sin, hearing the sweetness of the gospel, so that you grow in your love and appreciation for the gospel. That is what changes. That's where the motivation comes from. The motivation doesn't come from the rebuke. The rebuke is simply to give you the law so you feel the guilt. Then the gospel gives you, hopefully, a gratitude and an appreciation for what you know you fell to do every single day. That's the way it has to be approached. Does that make some sense? All right, go to Romans 3.20. This is very important. Go to Romans 3.20. This is like very profound stuff we're dealing with tonight. Romans 3.20. Everybody there? For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. So no one's going to be what? Justified by the law. Listen to how he says this. I want you to hear this. Everybody ready for this? God does not tell you to preach the law in order to make men godly. You do not preach the law in order to make men godly. Now, there's going to be some massive disagreements with this online. That's how, that's how it's, basically, it's how every church operates, right? 
Every sermon gives you law. Do this, 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 right? And the expectation is, if you're truly saved, you will do it. And if you don't do it, you're not saved. Do you see the problem? The law is not given to do what? I want to make sure everybody has what said. The law is not given to do what? To make you godly. The law will not make you godly. Does that, I want to make sure everyone has that down. The law will not make you godly. 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 But the church always handles it that way, right? Okay, everyone paying attention? That's how every... I, I, this, when, I, when I'm doing it from the pulpit, this is where it can get frustrating because when I'm doing it behind the microphone in a podcast, I can just play 900 sermons. But just go listen to sermons if you don't believe me, right? I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to argue with me. Just go listen. I can find sermons from every church in Abilene that approaches it this way, right? Every sermon is do this, 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 do this. And the expectation is that you will do it, that you can do it, And if you don't do it, it proves you're not saved or you lose your salvation. Meaning that they believe the law will do what? Make you godly. It will not make you godly. Is the law ever designed to make anyone godly? No. What is it designed to do? Show you your sin. The law makes no one godly, but when it begins to produce its proper effect, the person who is feeling its power begins to fume and rage against God. Please note that's exactly what happens. When the person feels the impact of the law, they typically get mad. They typically get angry. They typically get bothered. They typically get ticked off. Why? Because the law... What does the law do? It incites sin. It incites it. That, that's something the church, I don't, I don't, I was just I was on the way to church this morning. I was listening, I think it's called Hardwired. I've got to try to find it. But they were, they were, or maybe it was on the way home, listening to Understanding the Times. It was either on the way here or the way home. One way, I don't have to, I don't want to give the, it was either Hardwired or Understanding the Times. Those are the two programs I listened to on the way here and the way there. Okay, so, but they were talking about once again, You know the problem in our country? The Ten Commandments are not posted in the public schools. If we could do that, we could fix everything. Meaning that they believe that the Ten Commandments produces what? Godliness. You see, this has, this has practical implications on how we view things. Where we would say, it never has produced godliness. It never will produce godliness because it incites sin. It creates rebellion. It condemns. Because we're not able, not able to do it. But see, people have reduced Christianity to simply a moral system. And God comes not to save people who are incapable of keeping it, but he came to save people by making them capable of keeping it, which is Roman Catholicism. It's just, it is mind-boggling to me. Like this whole, like this whole discussion is just, 
Oh, it makes me so mad that I did not understand so much of this, and it makes me mad that the church was never there to help me figure it out, because it was, oh, oh, it makes me mad. All right, here we go. By the spectacle at Sinai, God has indicated to us how we are to preach the law. True, we cannot reproduce reproduce the thunder and lightning, obviously, of that day, but we can in a spiritual way. If we do it, it uh, it will be a sermon there may be as many in the audience who will say to themselves, if this man is right, I am lost. In other words, what he's saying, we are to preach the law in the same sternness in which it was given. And there was not given in which way? First of all, there was thunder and lightning to scare everyone to death, but it was given in what way? Do this and you will live. You don't, in fact, if you go to like Deuteronomy, remember it's all over the place, right? Do this and what do you get? Blessings, and if you don't do this, curse. There, was there exceptions? There's no exceptions in the law, right? If you do this, you die. If you do this, you die. And many Christians want to bring that back, and it blows my mind. I'm like, well, as soon as I hear someone say that, look, they've just destroyed the entire gospel. They've just, we should have people killed who commits that sin. Well, then we should have people killed who breaks any sin. Therefore, all of us are dead. It's just, oh man, I'm telling you, the gospel has been so lost in the church, I don't even know if we're ever going to find it again. I mean, it's that bad. It is that bad. That's where we have come. And then here's the last paragraph. Some indeed may say, this is not the way for an evangelical minister to preach, but it certainly is. He could not be an evangelical preacher if he did not preach the law thus. The law must precede the preaching of the gospel. Otherwise, the latter will have no effect. So how does it work? Law first, then gospel. Law first, then gospel. Law first, then gospel. Now, in many evangelical churches, they do make this a distinction and they do make it sound good, right? They will start with law. But here's what happens. This is so important. They will start with law and it sounds good, right? There's lots of ministries out there who really emphasized from the 1990s into the 2000s, really emphasized we got to use the law in our evangelism. And that sounds good and everybody should say amen and we applaud that, right? And then they say, here's the gospel. But what do they do? This is what they do. Law. Gospel, and then they bring the law right back in after the gospel, and they use the law now to determine if you ever got the gospel, which therefore they end up destroying the very gospel that they start they set out to try to to revive, which is horrible to see that happen. Because it sounds good. They got the law in the right place. They got the gospel in the right place, but it's it's the gospel with this. This is their kind of gospel. The gospel. But, the gospel, however, now you got to do, you got to do, now we're going to judge your receiving of the gospel based off what you do, which now destroys the gospel. It makes the gospel about making you able to do something that you were not previously able to do. And if you don't show that power to do it, then you're not saved and, well, we've gone through all of those problems. 
Okay, first comes Moses, then Christ. First John the Baptist, the forerunner, then Christ. At first the people will exclaim, how terrible is this? But but presently the preacher passes over the gospel and then the people are, then the people are cheered. They see the object of the preacher's preceding remarks. He wanted to make them see how awfully contaminated with sin they were and how sorely they needed the gospel. And then this brings us to thesis number seven, which will, we will stop. So what thesis are we on? Now number seven. What was thesis number six? We must preach what? The full sternness of the law and a gospel in the full sweetness. And if we don't do this correctly, we co-mingle. And what always gets destroyed? The gospel. But in many churches, the law is constantly, we take away the sternness of it by watering it down. We water it down in so many ways. And then how do we water down the gospel? By saying the gospel will save you by faith, but... You've got to do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And that destroys it all. Because what does the law demand? Perfect, exact, entire, perpetual. And if that's the way you're going to judge my salvation, then I am lost every single day. So then what do they do? They come back and then water down. They, They take away the sternness from the law to make it somehow able to now prove whether I'm saved or not saved, but they've destroyed now the stern. So you see in a roundabout way, they destroy what? Both of it. Both things are just utterly annihilated by all of this nonsense that happens in the church. A moral system and what I can and can't do. It just becomes a system of morality. I wish, I wish... I wish, and, well, no, actually I don't. I guess, I, in theory, I wish that this moral system was something that we all got onto, we all could do, and we all did it. Because it would be easy to prove the truth of Christianity, right? Christians are always different than the world. We think we preach that, but the world knows it's not true. The world knows it's not. They see in us themselves. And so they look at like, you're no better than me. And so then we get sermon after sermon that condemns us and rants against us not being a better testimony, not being a better witness, and that we need to do better, and we need to do better, and don't do this, and don't do that. And so what we will ultimately do is try to be extra careful around lost people so that we don't hurt our witness, but by, in reality, we pretend to be something we are not, and sooner or later they figure out that we are what we're not, what we, we have been pretending to be something that we're not, which is the very definition of hypocrisy. It's better for them to see that we're not perfect. To see our sin. Do we excuse that? No. But we say, yeah. I, I, here, here's the reality. Christianity is about a moral system that we cannot keep. That is the most baffling thing to me. And again, I've said it so many times. The greatest proof to me the Bible is from God is it gives us a moral system which we can't keep. Because if we wrote a book that contains a moral system, what would we do? We would write something we could keep. That's the greatest proof because the people who wrote it, they didn't even keep it. 
right? David writing the Psalms. Did he keep the standard? No. Solomon, who wrote the Proverbs. <laughs> Give me a break, right? Okay. Hey, be, be, be careful of the strange woman. Be careful of the adulteress. Uh, dude, you've got thousand women, okay? Who are you to preach to me about the adulterous woman? Okay, how about you go check yourself there, right? And the women looking at Solomon, oh, you're going to tell me to be the Proverbs 31 woman? Okay, yeah. Which one of your wives accomplished that goal, right? I mean, give me a break, right? I mean... Yeah, I mean, just Paul or anybody. I'm just saying, over and over and over, they, they, we fall short. Isn't it amazing that we have a book that gives a moral system, supposedly written by men, apart from God, because that's how the world sees it, but gives a moral system that we as humans can't keep. That's the most baffling thing in the world, which tells to me it has to be of divine origin. It has to be of divine origin because it gives me a moral system in which I cannot keep it. But whenever, whenever, and it's just amazing, Christians just have a hard time when I say this. They struggle. They're like, no, we have to be changed. No, we have to prove it. I'm like, okay, what's the proof? And then they'll throw out some verse, right? Well, love God, love your neighbor. Okay, but, but you won't do it perfectly. Well, then how can my imperfect prove it? I don't understand how, what you're saying. And then if I break one point of the law, I'm guilty of all of it. So then every time you look at my life, I'm guilty of all of it. So then how can you ever prove myself it? And the, well, what about this scripture? What about this scripture? Stop with, or, or, or the constant. I don't know how many times I've gotten emails over this. No, 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 no. We get the power to do it. Or no, our hearts are changed. We get the, and I'm saying if we've got the power, why can't we be perfect? And then they'll try to say, well, it's because we don't use the power. So, so now, the power is there, but the power is not powerful enough to change my want to, to my not want to, to a want to. So, so, but you're saying that in 2,000 years of church history, there's not been one Christian who wanted to? Because Paul said, the things I want to do, well, if he wanted to, then why wasn't he perfect? My flesh, the law of sin. Like, I mean, it, make, it makes no sense. But, but Christians get into an argument about all this. I'm just, just, just take it to its logical conclusion. If I have the power to keep it, then I should be perfect. Is anybody perfect? Immediately demonstrating we don't have power. Number two, right? I mean, that's, that's, already, that's very important, right? We don't have the power. Number two, if you're going to judge my salvation based off what I do, then what I do would have to be Perfect. And so immediately you take it to the logical conclusion, then the only thing we can come up to is we have to either go back to Rome or we have to believe that we are saved by what kind of righteousness? Imputed. And that I am not given the power to do it. I'm saved by someone who had the power to do it. And guess what? I still obviously have a sinful nature and a sinful heart. And if you say I don't have a sinful nature or a sinful heart anymore, then I should be able to be perfect. But yet I'm not perfect. Like, just the reality of life should make you question these, some of these theological conclusions. It was the, it was the, reality, of li- the reality of life in the Roman Catholic University that began to, you know, everything began to change for me. It's like, but I struggled with this way back. I mean, I, I remember going to the office there at First Baptist Church Tuscola to Brother Mike going, I think I'm demon-possessed. Because I didn't understand. 
I keep sinning. 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 He didn't have a good answer. Other, he, the good thing is he didn't tell me I was demon-possessed, but he didn't really have a good answer. He didn't articulate the gospel enough to me. It was a Lutheran pastor at least articulated the gospel better to me. But then that, the Lutheran pastor said I could lose my salvation, so that didn't, that didn't really help much either, right? So now, then MacArthur came along. I'm like, okay, okay, I, okay. Then we have to be able to do this. And like they, so then you just start trying to play all these games, figuring it out, but nobody could give me a consistent message. Every message was a, a problem. So, all right, we'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we, we fall short in every measurable way. If it's not for your son, then we are condemned. And we just, I hope that today will make us more grateful and give us a heart of gratitude for what your son did for us on the cross and for his imputed righteousness. And it's in his name we pray. And God's people said,